On December 16, 2000, in Tallahassee, Florida, a woman by the name of Denise Williams made a call to the Jackson County Police to report that her husband, Michael Williams, was missing. Earlier that morning, Mike had headed out to go duck hunting at a nearby lake. He only planned to go for a few hours. As he and his wife made plans for a weekend getaway down to Apalachicola, Florida, it was their sixth wedding anniversary, and as new parents of an 18-month-old daughter, they were both looking forward for some much-needed alone time. But as it got later and later, Mike still had not arrived back home. Denise started to worry about her husband's whereabouts. It was highly unusual for Mike not to call if he was going to be late. Soon a search party began, and Mike's friends and family descended upon the lake to look for him. Join me now as we take a deeper look into what became a 17-year mystery of the sudden disappearance of Mike Williams, a son, a husband, and a loving father who seemingly vanished into thin air. We'll journey through a marriage filled with infidelity and lies while uncovering a friendship that was in fact riddled with greed and betrayal. Together, we'll discover what led ordinary people to do the unthinkable. And just how far will a mother go to seek the truth? Some say a mother's love is the most powerful force on earth. It's abiding and enduring. But what happens to a mother's force when she loses a child? And how can a mother possibly begin to grieve when she doesn't know what she's grieving for? Just how far will a mother's love go in order to find answers and seek justice? On the very early morning hours on December 16, 2000, somewhere just beneath Lake Seminole, in a spot where tree stumps jut out of the water like claws from the swampy waters, Mike Williams headed out to go duck hunting. It was still dark when he arrived and parked his Bronco and offloaded his small boat, a metal flat-bottomed canoe with an outboard motor to navigate through the often shallow waterways. Mike only had a few hours to hunt because he promised his wife Denise he'd be home by noon in time to leave for their planned getaway. When he didn't arrive back home, Denise called local police and a search party began. Mike's best friend, Brian Winchester, and his father, Marcus Winchester, were among those that helped to look for Mike that day. As it got later and later in the day, it occurred to Brian they probably weren't going to find Mike before dark. But Brian's father, Marcus, refused to leave, feeling emotional about Mike, who he'd thought of like a son, out there in the dark, all alone. He just couldn't leave without finding him. Even after the others had stopped looking for the day, the Winchesters continued their search well past dark. Suddenly, they came across his boat brushed up on the shoreline, about 75 feet away from his Ford Bronco. While relieved to find his boat and vehicle, 
they were just as concerned with what they didn't find. Mike. The Jackson County Law Enforcement Agency, along with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, FFWCC, organized an exhaustive search, focusing on the immediate 10-mile area surrounding the location of Mike's boat and truck. A few days into the search, Mike's best friend, Brian Winchester, and his dad found a hat similar to the one Mike often wore hunting. At that point, law enforcement presumed Mike's boat had hit a tree stump, perhaps causing him to fall out of the boat, leading him to drown. At times, portions of the 10-mile search area can be as deep as 8 to 12 feet of water. It was suspected that Mike had been wearing his waders while duck hunting, as he often did. If someone were to fall into the water wearing waders, they could drown quite quickly. Was it possible that Mike had fallen into one of the rare deep areas of the lake wearing his waders? After finding what was thought to be Mike's hat, the search quickly went from being a search and rescue to a body recovery. Law enforcement told Denise that if her husband had drowned, his body would likely surface between four to seven days as had happened with other drowning victims at Lake Seminole. They assured her that of the 80 people who had drowned at that lake, they had recovered all of their bodies. The search was exhaustive and included helicopters scanning the waters from above, divers and boats searching the water below, along with cadaver dogs searching the surrounded area. But as time went on, and with no sign of Mike, Searchers surmised he might have been eaten by alligators. Still hoping to at least find remnants of Mike's body, they continued to search for another 44 days before giving up. A day later, Denise held a memorial service for Mike. Six months went by before a fisherman found a pair of waders in pristine condition along with a jacket with a fishing license in the pocket and a flashlight in working order nearby. The fishing license was in the name of Mike Williams. What was unusual was that all the items appeared to have been placed in the water recently. The waders weren't slimy, as would be expected after being in the water for so long, and there were no teeth marks on them, considering the theory Mike had been eaten by alligators. So where was Mike? Jerry Michael Williams was born on October 16, 1969, in Bradfordville, Florida, located about 20 minutes north of the state capital, Tallahassee. Mike and his older brother Nick were raised in humble beginnings by his father, who worked as a bus driver, and his mother as a daycare provider. Growing up, the family sacrificed and lived a minimalist lifestyle, living in a trailer and working hard so that both boys could attend a private school. It was there that Mike met his future wife, Denise Merrill, and his best friend, Brian Winchester, along with Brian's future wife, Kathy. The foursome went on to attend North Florida Christian High School together, where Mike was the class president and star athlete. 
Following high school, both couples then attended Florida State University and spent most of their free time together. On weekends, they went out to dinners and movies together, along with concerts to listen to their favorite local bands, one of which was Sister Hazel, with a top 10 hit entitled, All For You. The lyrics describe a man who can't deny his feelings for a girl he loves and is still willing to sacrifice everything to be with her. Following college, Mike joined Ketchum Appraisal Group as a commercial property appraiser and was described by co-workers as a dedicated hard worker. He then married his childhood sweetheart, Denise Merrill, in 1994. A few months later, their longtime friends, Brian and Kathy, also got married. It seemed the couples were living parallel lives. At the time of Mike's disappearance, he was known as extremely hardworking and was making $200,000 annually. His income allowed him to purchase a home in an upscale gated subdivision, and the couple was beginning to think about having a second child. As dedicated as Mike was to his work, he was equally devoted to his wife and daughter. It wasn't uncommon for Mike to leave work in the middle of the day to fill up his wife Denise's car with gas or bring her food when she requested, although some in the close-knit office referred to her requests as demands. Everyone around the office wanted a husband to take care of them the way that Mike took care of Denise. Before Mike married Denise, he had obtained a $250,000 life insurance policy naming his mother Cheryl as his beneficiary. After getting married, he changed the beneficiary to his wife Denise and at her urging added another policy for $500,000. Once their first daughter was born, Denise insisted Mike increase his policy to $1 million. She considered this amount to be well in line with what he was earning at the time. His best friend, Brian Winchester, sold him the policy as he worked for his father at Winchester Financial, selling insurance as well as providing financial planning services. Because of the premium date on the $500,000 policy, there was a three-month overlap with the second policy, which it was meant to replace for $1 million. A week following the discovery of Mike's belongings at the lake, Denise requested a judge to declare Mike deceased so she could collect on his life insurance, which because of the overlap, now totaled almost $2 million. Normally, in a missing persons case, without a body, five years must go by before someone can be declared dead. Denise was fortunate that she had Mike's best friend Brian and his father to help her navigate through the paperwork and even helped her find an attorney to have Mike declared legally dead. Despite both couples having strong religious beliefs, the boundaries of their marriage seemed to become a bit foggy. It was later discovered that unbeknownst to Mike, at some point, Brian, Kathy, and Denise had become intimately involved together. 
and that Brian had even videotaped some of their encounters. But it didn't seem to end there. Later, Kathy started finding receipts for events she hadn't attended and for jewelry she hadn't been given, and she started to think that Brian had been having an affair. Obviously, she suspected it was with Denise. In 2001, Kathy and Brian separated, and he began to secretly date Denise. Surprisingly, Kathy and Denise still remained best friends. Mike's disappearance, which had long been considered an accidental drowning, had been concluded in everyone's minds, except for Mike's broken-hearted mother, Cheryl Williams. Cheryl insisted that something far more sinister had happened the morning her son disappeared, and she refused to give up until she found out the truth. In order to gain attention from law enforcement and force an investigation, Cheryl repeatedly sought out interviews with local newspapers regarding her son's mysterious disappearance. In 2004, the FDLE finally opened up an official investigation into the death of Mike Williams, switching his death from suspected drowning to suspicious circumstances. At the time of Mike's disappearance, nothing seemed to be amiss, and therefore, none of the evidence had been tested or preserved. In fact, it was all returned to Mike's widow while the search was still going on. This put the investigation to an extreme disadvantage. However, Cheryl continued on her quest for justice and started putting ads in the newspaper asking for any leads into her son's disappearance. She also purchased billboards and sat outside the FDLE's office carrying signs and posters. Additionally, Cheryl wrote the governor of Florida a letter every single day for over four years. Eventually, all 1,300 letters landed on the desk of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Her determination was unwavering, no matter how many years went by. On the other hand, unlike Michael's mother, his wife Denise appeared to be content with the little-known facts surrounding her husband's disappearance. She was ready to put it all behind her and move on with her life. It didn't take long before Denise became furious with Cheryl's effort to get an investigation started into Mike's disappearance. At one point, Denise and Brian both threatened that if Cheryl didn't stop the investigation, she would never be allowed to see her granddaughter again. But Cheryl refused, even though by that time, it was no longer up to her. Cheryl asked Denise, if the roles were reversed, would she ever give up on her own daughter? Immediately, Denise cut off all ties between Cheryl and her granddaughter. 
While Cheryl desperately yearned for a relationship with her granddaughter, she just couldn't give up on her own personal investigation into her son's disappearance. It was heartbreaking for her to be put in that position to choose. She decided she still needed to somehow let her granddaughter know that she loved her immensely and was there for her. One of the only ways she felt she could get a message out to her granddaughter was by posting an ad in the local paper, which she did each year for 17 years on her granddaughter's birthday. She could only pray that somehow she would see it. Because of Brian and Denise's behavior, Cheryl began taking notes. Eventually, she managed to fill 27 pages of a notebook with various facts, questions, and anomalies associated with her son's disappearance, and later handed them all over to law enforcement. Included in the notes was a report debunking the alligator theory. Cheryl had gone so far as to hire a wildlife and alligator expert to provide a written report, which stated that alligators go through a state of brumation during winter months. Brumation is a form of hibernation, which meant they don't eat during that time. The day of William's disappearance, the water was 19 degrees Fahrenheit, and the lake had as much as 20 feet of ice surrounding the shoreline. The expert hired by Cheryl empathetically stated that Mike could not have been eaten by alligators. Other things noted included Denise filing for Mike's life insurance policy just 19 days into the search for his body. Denise secretly filing a lawsuit declaring Mike dead just four months after his disappearance. Denise and Brian threatening Cheryl, demanding her to stop the investigation. Denise's new husband was Mike's best friend, who wrote two of his three life insurance policies, and also the person to find Mike's hat. And interestingly enough, although Brian was Mike's best friend, he was one of the only people Denise didn't call when Mike first went missing. Last but not least, Cheryl also noted her discovery through the manufacturer of Mike's boat that it had been designed in such a way that if it happened to become unmanned at any point while running, it would circle until it ran out of gas. However, Mike's boat was found on the shore, engine off, and with a full tank of gas, contradicting one of the theories that Mike's boat had collided with something and he had fallen overboard and drowned. Despite Cheryl's successful attempt to reopen the investigation into Mike's death, there was very little actual evidence to investigate. This lack of evidence, coupled with Brian and Denise's lack of cooperation, meant the investigation was quickly going nowhere. In 2007, the FDLE officially named Brian Winchester and Denise Williams as persons of interest in Mike Williams' disappearance. This fact, notwithstanding, 
very little movement or progress was made on the case. It became apparent to the FDLE that short of a confession by one or more of the parties involved, the case would remain unsolved. In the meantime, they kept close track on the Winchesters and periodically followed up on leads. When the FDLE heard that Denise and Brian Winchester had filed for divorce and Denise had filed a restraining order against Brian, Special Agent Mike Devaney hoped this would be the break in the case he'd been waiting for. In 2015, Denise Williams Winchester filed for divorce from Brian Winchester based on infidelity, as well as asserting Brian was financially controlling and emotionally and verbally abusive. Eventually, Denise cut off all communications with her estranged husband. As Brian continued to lose control of the situation, and more importantly, lose control of Denise, his actions became more and more erratic. Brian told several people Denise had information on him, and he was very concerned that Denise would share it with the police. In order to prevent this from happening, on August 5th, 2016, Brian broke into his estranged wife's car with the sole intention of talking to her. As Denise started her car and pulled away from her home in her Chevy Suburban, she noticed her estranged husband climbing over the back seat with a gun in hand. He demanded she drive to a remote area to talk. Denise sensing a remote area might result in a poor outcome for herself, instead pulled into a CVS pharmacy parking lot. Her purpose for doing so was in hopes that the store's surveillance camera would pick up Brian holding her at gunpoint. Later, Brian would allege he was only there to make sure she would adhere to their secret pact of silence and also to possibly commit suicide. His wife was divorcing him, his mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and his teenage son wanted nothing to do with him. Brian Winchester had reached rock bottom. Fortunately, Denise was able to calm Brian down by agreeing to everything he had said and expressing her continued love for him. Denise allegedly told him he was loved by many others and implored him not to kill himself that day. Denise had also sufficiently convinced Brian that she would not turn him into the police for holding her at gunpoint. Brian, eventually feeling hopeful and reassured by Denise, exited the back of the Suburban, taking with him his gun, a hammer-type weapon, a sheet, a tarp, two bottles of bleach, and a spray bottle filled with an unknown liquid. Denise began to cry. She had just gone through a life-and-death experience and was shaken up. In what would later assuredly become a moment of regret, Denise called her brother-in-law, a Leon County police officer, to get some advice on keeping herself and her daughter safe from Brian Winchester. Denise's brother-in-law convinced her to come into the police department and get a restraining order against Brian to ensure she didn't change her mind 
he stayed on the phone with her until she arrived at the station. While Denise was initially hesitant, she was eventually convinced that at the very least, she needed to obtain a restraining order for her own safety and for the safety of her daughter. It appeared that Denise didn't fully grasp the severity of Brian's actions. She clearly didn't realize that once she reported the incident, it would take on a life of its own. While she only intended on obtaining a restraining order, she discovered Brian would be facing a far more serious charge with severe jail time attached. At this point, she had no other choice but to go through with the police interview. In fact, when she arrived at the police station, it soon became apparent that law enforcement saw this as an opportunity to solve the long-ago disappearance of her first husband, Mike Williams. Denise seemed just as adamant that wouldn't be happening. The detective assigned to the case was getting nowhere with Denise. About 90 minutes into the interview, her brother-in-law came in and tried to get her to implicate Brian in Mike Williams' disappearance. He told Denise it was time to stop protecting him. That it was time to protect herself and time to get justice for Mike Williams. He told Denise that he knew she wasn't involved in Mike's disappearance, but believed that Brian was, and suggested that Brian must have confessed to having some involvement during some time in their marriage. He surmised to Denise that Brian had held her at gunpoint that day to prevent her from telling law enforcement about what she knew or suspected happened to her first husband. But Denise vehemently denied that notion. Getting nowhere, her brother-in-law left the room. In his place entered FDLE Special Agent Mike Devaney. Devaney got right to the point, letting Denise know that he's done his best to dissect her life over the years and has been watching her for a very long time. You know, I've been looking into Mike's disappearance, okay? Um, literally dissected as much as I could about you, you know, members of your family, uh, Brian, um, Mike, and, you know, his family. And the family when you and Mike were together, okay? Um, worked with a lot of people, you know, trying to figure out the whole scenario, his disappearance, um, and had to go back and literally reinvestigate a lot of things that uh, was investigated before, okay? Um, and again, I had to go back to y'all's marriage and what were you doing during those times? What were you doing job-wise? And Mike, you know, and Mike's employer, the whole works, okay? What you all know, what you didn't know. Um, and this has been an ongoing process for a long time. Um, and I, you need to understand that, okay? You know, I used to know the, you know, the uh, your 
your, your gate code by heart and go to your neighborhood. I know your house very well. You know, I know when you took the carpet on the whole works. You know, and then the whole lot I don't know. Okay. Please understand that. Talking about the hardwood floors upstairs. You name it, I know about it. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. Maybe you can fill in a couple of gaps for me. Can, can you do that for me? I can try. Okay. Um, obviously, I, the reason I'm here, I, I knew about what happened today. Okay. Um, and like the other officers said, you're going to have to, it's going to have to sink in that today was going to be your last day. Please let that sink in. I mean, he, he didn't have sheets to, to sleep on, you know, tonight or the night before or the night after. He had plastic and he had some other object. What was that other object he had? Could you tell? Can you describe it? Um, it was, I, I mean, it was like maybe, it wasn't a hammer, but it was kind of that size and maybe wider. I, I don't, I have no it idea what it was. Uh, no, it wasn't a shovel. I mean, it was like a, I mean, it definitely wasn't a shovel, but, I, but it was about the size, the length of like a hammer. But it, was, but it seemed to be fatter the way that he grabbed it, but I have no idea. When you were going towards CVS, it's, it's what I can understand. He wanted to turn around and go the other way. He kept saying go to the roundabout, and I think he was wanting me to go back, but I, I wasn't house. really listening. I was Maybe, but I wasn't really listening. I was just trying to get yeah. to CVS. Special Agent Devaney wasted no time getting to the question he really wanted the answer to. Where do you think my experience Oh, I, I have no idea. Any speculation on that? On where he's buried? Buried. I mean, I believe... You don't really believe he, he died at, on the lake? I do. Why? I just, I just always have. That's what I believe. And I have, from when he was saying roundabout, I have... I don't know. I talked with the last two people, and I can't remember if he wanted me to turn left or right. I don't no, 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 no. That's all I'm talking about. Uh, why do you think Mike perished in the lake? I just he didn't he didn't die like Seminole, okay? I don't that's what I've always believed, that's what I believe. And why? I've never been proven anything different. I don't Well, is there any proof he if he would have perished in that lake, he would have been found. Okay. There's never been a person that has fallen over or whatever. That they've never found except for Mike. I mean, that's literally, it's, it's, it's a possibility that he died in that lake. I, I guess to, that, that's just what I believe. Really? Devaney wasn't buying Denise's story and proceeded to confront her with information about their ongoing investigation. I mean, you, you knew all the information about, you know, what was recovered out there and all that, right? My dad would keep me updated. Yeah. yeah. Get this big monster search and none of that, and then later it just appears. I mean, that, you know, that kind of led investigators uh, going in different directions than uh, what they initially thought. Okay. Uh, I mean, I was even curious. I mean, I, I recovered the car you know, I used to have during that time. I got it from a junkyard in Alabama, brought it back here and tore it apart. The little boat that Mike um, had, well, he knew both. I found it over in Monticello. Brought it back. Just I just wanted to get a good look at it. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff you don't have a clue what we've looked at. 
Devaney knew Denise had a clue about Mike's whereabouts, so he decided to switch tactics. Maybe, in an attempt to rattle her, he dropped a bombshell. They had compromising videos of Denise, Kathy, and Brian. Were you and, were you and I guess you, Mike, Kathy, and Brian, y'all are pretty close before Mike disappeared, right? Yeah. And how close were y'all? I mean, I would say we talk pretty much every day. We were very close. Yeah. I'm still very pleasant. Yeah, I know that. I mean, again, we've researched, you know, trips y'all used to make to Orlando and some other stuff. And apparently you were really close. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I don't We, yeah, me and Kathy still, she's texting me right now, so we're still very close. Okay. If I say we're totally aware of all the, vi- the videos, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you say what? The videos? I would have to see them. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. But you, okay. you're clueless when I say videos. I don't, yeah. You, you Kathy and Brian? I would have to see them. Yeah. You're, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't say you've never seen them. No, I'm just, I'm just starting to feel very uncomfortable. Okay. But well, I'm, I'm, I've been uncomfortable for a long time because we needed some things on this case. Right. And we were hoping one day that either Brian or you maybe could Denise wasn't going to see the videos in question and denied any knowledge about them. In an attempt to steer the conversation, she insisted she was at the station to file a restraining order against Brian. But I guess right now I really I need to focus on this and what happened this morning, and I want to get this restraining order done by five o'clock, and I want. I mean, I want me and my daughter to be safe. And that's well said. There's, there's no doubt that Brian's going to be located and put in jail. But I just want to get this restraining order done so that I can have a little peace yeah. for tonight with my daughter. That, that's what I'm focused on. Well, if, he's, if he's arrested, you know, in the next few hours, which I'm sure is going to happen. You know, Leon County is very good about finding people. Okay. Uh, that's going to happen. Later that day, Brian was arrested on charges of aggravated kidnapping with enhanced charges of using a deadly weapon. He was shocked to learn he could possibly be facing a life sentence. Denise was equally as shocked. As Brian was arrested, Denise immediately ceased cooperating with detectives and refused to return their phone calls. She appeared uninterested in the prosecution of her estranged husband for the actions the day of her kidnapping. When Denise couldn't seem to stop the prosecution of Brian, she became increasingly worried about what Brian might say about her and called his ex-wife, Kathy Winchester Thomas. She asked Kathy to pass a message on to Brian's dad, Marcus Winchester. She wanted Marcus to tell Brian that she wasn't talking to the police. Her message may have kept Brian quiet for a time. However, 
As the gravity of his situation began to sink in, he started to realize he had nothing left to lose. This was the opportunity law enforcement had been waiting for, for 17 years. Originally, they'd been hoping to turn Denise against Brian, finally bringing some closure to Cheryl Williams and some justice for her son, Mike Williams. More than anything, they wanted to bring Mike home to his mother, Cheryl. But in order to accomplish this, they had to make a deal with the devil. And oh, what a deal it was. Brian was looking at life in prison for his role in his wife's kidnapping. Realizing things weren't looking good for himself, he hoped a proffer agreement would get him something on the low end of the sentencing guidelines. A proffer agreement is an agreement between federal prosecutors and individuals under criminal investigation, which permits these individuals to tell the government about their knowledge of crimes with the supposed assurance that their words will not be used against them in any later proceedings. Ultimately, the prosecution asked for 45 years, and the judge gave him 20. In October 2017, Brian Winchester pled guilty to the charges against him for aggravated kidnapping. He gave a tear-filled statement where he apologized to Denise. He apologized to the court. He apologized to his son. He apologized to his father and he apologized to the rest of his family. Next, it was Denise's turn to give a victim impact statement. He was waiting for me in the back of my car with a gun. He grabbed the steering wheel. He shoved the gun in my ribcage, screaming profanities uncontrollably at me. I will never be the same. I would never wish this on anyone. I can't sleep. I can't eat because I only see him rising up out of the back of the car. I can't have peace because I only hear his voice screaming and cussing at me. Please don't let him out. Knowing nothing about Brian's proffer agreement, she couldn't very well stand up for Brian. She had to go all in, or suspicion might fall upon her. She begged the judge to give Brian life in prison. Next, Denise read a statement from her daughter. I am scared. My mom is scared. He had a gun. He could have killed her. She is all I have. Please don't let him out. He will come for her, and then I will have no one. To Brian's amazement, the judge gave him 20 years with 15 years probation. He was expecting 10. What Denise wasn't aware of was that Brian had an ironclad immunity agreement in exchange for the whereabouts of her first husband. The deal with the devil 
meant the person who had actually killed Mike Williams would never serve a minute of time for his murder. In a well-timed move by the prosecutor's office, the day of Brian's sentencing, Denise was informed her husband's body had been recovered and his death was the result of homicide. When confronted by the media, Denise had no opinion or comment. When asked to participate in an interview with law enforcement about the homicide investigation of her recently found husband, she declined. Five months later, Denise Williams was arrested at her place of work for first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and accessory after the fact in the murder of her husband, Mike Williams. On December 10, 2018, the trial of Denise Williams began in a Leon County courtroom. The trial, long considered a local mystery, garnered national media attention, and the trial was televised live. Opening statements began with the prosecutor explaining how they got there that day. Plans are made between Denise and Mike to go to Apalachicola to celebrate their anniversary. There's even conversations possibly of new baby that Mike wants. Denise secretly is in a relationship with Brian. Doesn't want to go on this trip. Pressure's mounting. Insurance, insurance policy is expiring. They talk about it throughout the week and the plan back on. So they start talking about how to do this thing. They limit the conversations between them. They're mindful of records. They're mindful of getting caught. And they set up their alibis. Denise is supposed to stay home, of course. She got an 18-month-old child at this particular time. Um, so she's supposed to stay home, make phone calls so everybody knows where she's at. Brian sets up an alibi where he's actually supposed to go hunting with Kathy, his wife's um, father, his father-in-law. And he's supposed to meet up with him and go hunting with him later on um, that morning. And what the plan is, is that he will go with Mike hunting, commit the murder. Mike drown, leave him there, drive back and meet Kathy's father for his alibi. That they set up all of this and establish what their alibis are going to be, Brian killed him. He's going to tell you how it happened. That he actually followed him to Lake Seminole. They didn't drive together. They met up at a gas station and then actually followed each other there. That was important because he needed two cars there. One to get away and, one, of course, one to leave it. Uh, Mike's Bronco there to make it look like Mike had gone out there hunting solo. And it had been an accident. So they get in the boat together. You're going to hear Brian say that he talked Mike and actually putting the waders on. One of the things that some duck hunters do is they won't wear the waders in the boats because of the dangerous aspect of them. But they have a conversation, and he convinces them to put the waders on before they head out. So now they're heading out, and they've got the waders in the boat. Brian pushed them over. But it didn't go as planned. And Brian's going to tell you what happened next. The prosecution opened by calling their star witness, the defendant's ex-husband, Brian Winchester. Brian began by explaining the history between the couples, Mike and Denise, and Brian and Kathy. He explained that in 1997, he suspected his wife Kathy had been cheating on him. To retaliate, he said that he kissed Denise Williams at a Sister Hazel concert. 
He explained how he had began an illicit and secret affair with Denise for three years. He shared how they were able to keep their relationship secret and all the places they would meet and even spend weekends away from their spouses. Despite the affair, he said he still maintained a friendship with Mike and they spoke every day. He then told the jury about a hunting trip he went on with Mike that sparked an idea to remove him from the picture. Mike and I were on a um, hunting trip together and it was at a, a lake that was dry and we had to walk across the mud and there were places in the mud where basically you could fall through the mud and there was nothing underneath. It was like, it was basically, I guess people would call it like quicksand. And Mike fell into one of those mud holes at one time and it was just he and I out there and I helped him out of it and he had dropped his gun in there as well and he ended up going back in it after his gun. But um, I remember telling Denise about that and how if I hadn't have been there or if I hadn't have helped him out that, you know, it's very likely he would have disappeared and nobody would have known what happened to him. He confessed that he told Denise about the incident, and the two began to fantasize about an act of God taking their spouses from them so they could be together. For Denise, getting a divorce was out of the question. Denise, because of the way she was raised, because of her pride, I, I guess I, I can't say all the reasons, but she did not want to get divorced and stated that she would not get divorced, but she still had a desire for us to be together, which narrowed the options uh, even further, I guess. So Brian says that him and Denise came up with other ideas on how to get rid of their spouses. One of the options, uh, Mike worked a lot at night up at his office, and one of the options was um, that we could make it look as if uh, there was a, a burglary of some sort up at his office and that he uh, got shot in some type of robbery or something up at his office. Denise didn't like that idea. I didn't like that idea, and Denise didn't like that idea, but primarily because there would be an investigation uh, if something like that occurred. So another idea, we all used to go out on boats a lot, and Mike had a boat. And another option was that the four of us would go out on a boat out into the Gulf, me and Kathy and Denise and Mike. And uh, we'd go out in a boat on the Gulf. And basically uh, that Kathy and Mike would be pushed overboard and that Denise and I would find a buoy way offshore that we could hold on to and either let the boat sink or let the boat take off on its own or whatever and make it look like we had an accident on the water uh, and that Denise and I had survived the accident. During all this planning, the life insurance policy for $500,000 is set to lapse. Mike had intended for that policy, the $500,000 policy, to, to lapse. He he was not intending to continue it. And so behind his back, uh, Denise paid one more. I can't remember if it was quarterly or semi-annual premium, but we kept it going uh, one more premium period. And we knew we weren't going to be able to keep it going perpetually, that he would eventually see this money, hey, it's going out of the checking account for that policy that I didn't want anymore. So there was that. Near the end of this policy period, Mike starts putting pressure on Denise to have a second child and schedules a romantic weekend away for their six-year wedding anniversary. Neither Denise nor Brian wants this weekend to happen. The new plan 
is for Brian to take Mike hunting to a secret location at Lake Seminole. It's Denise's job to make sure that Mike is there and to tell investigators after the fact that Mike went hunting alone. After they arrived, the plan was for Brian to guide them to a deep part of the lake and push Mike overboard. They hoped that once Mike's waders filled with water, he would quickly drown. On December 16, 2000, Mike Williams and Brian Winchester arrive at Lake Seminole well before dawn. Brian explains to the court how he convinced Mike to put the waders on, saying that they were running late so they should put them on before getting into the boat. Because I knew where we were going hunting, I was in the back of the boat driving, and he was in the front. I know I was very concerned about the time. Um, everything had taken longer than what I had anticipated and I had to be back in town early enough in time to meet my father-in-law for, for my alibi trip to occur. And so we headed out and there was a deep area, maybe a couple hundred yards from the landing that we put in at. We got to that area that I knew was a, a deep area. I don't remember exactly how I got him to stand up, but I don't know if I pretended something was wrong with the motor or the weight in the boat was off or something, but I basically stopped the boat and got him to, to stand up, and when he did, I pushed him into the water. So he was in the water, and he was like struggling and the motor of the boat was still running and I pulled off just a little bit to get kind of away from him so that he couldn't reach back into the boat I didn't know it at the time I, I didn't know if he was trying to swim or I didn't know what was going on, but what I came to find out or eventually realized was he was taking the waders and the jacket off. He got those off, and that area of the lake had a lot of snags, a lot of dead trees that come up out of the water, and there's a lot of stumps that come up out of the water. <laughs> He swam over to one of those stumps and held on to it. And he was panicking, and I was panicking. And none of this was like going well. I thought it was going to go. And I didn't. I didn't know what to do. But um. He was, he started to yell. And I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know how to get out of that situation. 
And so, I had my gun in the boat. <laughs> and, uh, so I loaded my gun and I just, I made one or two circles around And I ended up circling closer towards him. And he was in the water. And as I passed by, I shot him in the head. Brian realizes quickly this can no longer be explained away as a drowning accident, so he explains how he grabbed Mike's arm and navigates the boat to shore, dragging his body with him. Once on shore, Brian stated that he covered Mike's face with his jacket to avoid looking at him and loaded Mike's body into the back of his Suburban. To establish his alibi, Brian says that he went home with Mike's body still in his truck, sitting in the driveway. He then said he woke up his wife and called his father-in-law to tell him that he'd overslept and wouldn't be able to go hunting with him that afternoon as planned. He then said he made an excuse to his wife Kathy about needing to drive to Walmart, where he bought a tarp, weights, and a shovel. Brian then tells the court that he drove to a dry lake bed at Car Lake to bury Mike. You know, my thinking was I was going to drag him way out into the lake. And so I got the tarp and put it on the ground behind my truck, pulled Mike out, put him on that tarp, kind of wrapped him up. And as I pulled him instantly, I knew there was no way I was going to be able to move him any distance at all. That He was just too heavy and that wasn't going to happen. I had to find somewhere close. It was a really grown-up area. And like I said, the lake was almost dry, so the water was down. And I decided to put him down in the lake bed itself, kind of on the edge of the lake, so that eventually when the water came back up, that area would be underwater. And it was hidden from the road somewhat and started digging a hole. That hole was where Mike Williams would remain for the next 17 years. While his heartbroken mother, Cheryl, wondered every single day what happened to her son. And his wife moved on with her life. Next, the prosecution called Brian Winchester's ex-wife, Kathy Thomas. Kathy and Denise had remained best friends and spoke to each other every day, up until the time she was arrested. Working as an informant for the prosecution, and at Brian's request, Kathy recorded phone conversations between herself and Denise. Brian told me that y'all planned it. Planned what? 
Marcus showed up at the shop later that afternoon, you know, telling me how I would have to take this to my grave, that it would ruin Catherine's life, it would ruin, you know, apparently Brian told Marcus that he had talked to me, and he went on to... Just tell me, Marcus went on to tell me how my life would be ruined, how I would never be able to start over, if Stafford's life was ruined, if... So Marcus knew? And when you said Brian said y'all, you're talking about me and Brian or Marcus or who? You and Brian. And And that Marcus is involved? I mean, obviously, if he came and talked to you. Well, it was just the whole, you know, shut it down. That other voice on the tape is Denise Williams, right? Yes. Do you see Denise Williams in the courtroom today? Yes, I do. Can you point her out and identify an article of clothing that she's wearing? Um, yes, she's right over here on the, to the right of me, and she's wearing a gray sweater. Let the record reflect that the witnesses identified the defendant, Denise Williams. Nothing further. During the recorded phone conversations played in the courtroom, Denise changes the subject several times and becomes fixated on the fact that Marcus Winchester allegedly knew, never actually clarifying what exactly it was that he knew. Denise Williams chose not to testify on her own behalf. During the prosecution's closing statements, he explains why he had to make a deal with the devil. I had to make a decision to solve a 17-year-old homicide case. Was it a good decision? I don't know. Time will tell. That is a cross that I must bear. To sit here and listen to him describe how he killed his best friend while asking him the questions turns my stomach just like it did everybody else. But he is a part of this case, like it or not. He asked the jury not to focus so much on what Denise had said Rather, what she didn't say. He stated that if someone accused him of killing someone during a phone conversation, he wouldn't change the subject. If someone told him that someone else knew about what happened to his murdered spouse, he wouldn't fixate on who else may have known. The prosecutor told the jury that they never heard any denials. That lady right there, Miss Denise Williams, is guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Next, the defense thanks the jury for paying attention. He tells them no one is more appreciative of their time than his client, Denise Williams. He reminds them that an admitted murderer won't spend one day in jail for the murder of Mike Williams, the prosecutor's star witness. He alleged that Brian made the whole thing up out of revenge against Denise for putting him in jail. He stated that if you take away the testimony of an admitted liar and murderer, there is no evidence against his client. He voiced to the jury that this wasn't about sympathy for Cheryl Williams, and that it wasn't a story about a mother's love, that it was a story about Brian Winchester's vendetta against his ex-wife for putting him in prison. There is no we, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury. There is only the I, that is him, that is Brian Winchester, who viciously murdered his best friend 
dragged his body back to town in a dog crate, buried him in a shallow grave. To make this work for Brian Winchester, it doesn't really matter anymore. He's gotten all the benefit he's ever going to get out of that agreement, that deal, that Brian Winchester policy. But you see, the state's left with it now. They bought the policy. They bought it. They agreed to it. You don't have to buy a single thing that he sold them. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to do it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Drew, you took three oaths to tell the truth. It got you to where you're sitting here today. And I'm going to respectfully hold you to those oaths. And Denise Williams is going to hold you to those oaths. You're going to look at those instructions, and you're going to see it. And you're going to look through it, and you're going to look at that evidence. And you're not going to feel sorry for the state. You're not going to feel the need to somehow give them a conviction so they get something out of this. That's not justice. And these instructions will contain a phrase, miscarriage of justice. We are counting on you to return a verdict that speaks the truth, and that verdict is not guilty. The prosecutor asked the jury to think about why Denise Williams hadn't mentioned to police that her husband went hunting with Brian Winchester the day he disappeared. He asked the jury to question why Denise had demanded Mike's mother to cease her attempts at an investigation if she had nothing to hide. Finally, he questioned why after 19 days into an ongoing search for Mike, Denise had filed on his life insurance policies. After only eight hours of deliberation, the jury found Denise Williams guilty on all charges. She would be serving a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. You may recall, the defense attorney had stated during his closing arguments that this wasn't a story about a mother's love, when in fact, it was. This was a story about a mother determined to find justice and find those responsible for murdering her son. This is a story about a mother who persevered, who never gave up, and never lost hope. All along, she trusted her maternal instincts and never stopped until she was able to lay her son to rest peacefully. She proved that the love of a parent is indeed one of the most powerful forces on earth. It's a story that we believe will bring hope to countless families whose loved ones are still missing or have been murdered with no answers. Cheryl Williams plans on placing one last birthday announcement in the newspaper this year for her granddaughter. It will be the last one she hopes now that the truth has been revealed, her granddaughter will contact her and that they can try and make up for all the time that was taken from them. We hope that if anything can be salvaged from the devastation that two people inflicted on so many, it is the relationship between Cheryl and her granddaughter. 
I want to send a huge thank you to Stephanie Moore. Coming out of the holidays, with all the craziness that was going on, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get an episode out by the 20th. Stephanie really stepped up and got the script ready for us, so we were able to get this show out to you. So from us and all of our listeners, thank you so much, Stephanie. Also, if you want to hear more about this case, Jillian, our good friend over at Court Junkie, has also covered this case, and she does a fantastic job giving you an in-depth look into the court proceedings. We really encourage you to check out her show. I would like to thank our following new Patreon supporters. Danielle S., Wendy L., Torkel, Tara D., Kimberly S., Dina S., Sherry N., Jamie W., Anna C., Meredith B., Dana B., Heather S., Kelly B., Karina P., Amanda B., Belinda M., Tyler Bell, from the awesome podcast, West Side Fairy Tales. Melinda B., Angela R., Diana A., John M., Ruth M., Valentina M., Tatiana V., and Charlene. Thanks again for all your support for the show. And now I would like to introduce the following two podcasts, Simply Strange. Hi, my name is PJ, and I host a show called Simply Strange. From cold cases to aliens... Cryptids to Ghost Stories, every episode of Simply Strange is a storytelling experience that will take you on a journey through some of our world's darkest mysteries, putting you in the shoes of those who experienced them, while also attempting to uncover the truth behind the madness. So if you love thought-provoking stories that will disturb you to your core, and maybe make you check the closet before you turn the lights out, then I would like to cordially invite you to come check out Simply Strange at simplystrangepodcast.com or just search Simply Strange wherever you listen to your podcasts, if you feel like it. And Nordic True Crime. Welcome to Nordic True Crime. We are a bi-weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So, if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Madness, I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. 
I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door